Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we re-examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Boyle. And today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review Terry Gilliam's Brazil. <laughs> where hearts are made in tender June. <laughs> That's I'm all so I remember. Glad you sang for me. <laughs> of course. So, or as Bob's Burgers fans will know it, Brazil. There you go. That's a, a more more contemporary reference for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's all I could think for the first ten minutes. Nice, nice. So, getting it out of the way before we even really like talk about what this movie's about, I want to say I expected you to enjoy this movie and that was not necessarily the case right i wouldn't even say i didn't enjoy it it was just more what the hell (laughs) it's a it's a weird movie it is it is and you know this is the first terry gilliam film we've watched he directed Uh a scene of monty python's life of brian Ooh, which scene the alien scene, the alien spaceship. The weirdest oh, you mean part of that the movie. The weirdest part of the movie. Exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm noticing a trend. Yeah. Um, but Terry Gilliam is a pretty damn cult director. Like, like most of the movies he did, especially his early work, is on our list. And yeah like weird and what the hell is going on is kind of a through line so it's accurate (laughs) it well do you want to tell the people what it is about i'll try my best um brazil is the story of sam lowry an ambitionless an ambitionless an ambitionless middle-aged bureaucrat living in a retro futuristic dystopian world Sam has no drive or desire to change his station in life, but does have vivid dreams of flight, adventure, and a woman he desperately loves. A series of coincidences brings Sam face-to-face with Jill, the woman of his dreams, and Sam moves heaven and earth to try and meet Jill and profess his love, all while dealing with a plastic surgery-addicted mother, a gorilla AC repairman, terrorist bombings, and the insane world Terry Gilliam came up with for this movie. I think that's pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I think this is episode 20. This is the first time my plot recap kind of broke the fourth wall and was like, like, hey, also, by the way, like, this world is nuts. Because I think that's kind of like the meat of the movie. Yes, there is the, the love story and the adventure between Sam and Jill. And that's going on throughout the entire movie, but... Honestly, what Brazil is about is this 1984-inspired, crazy, non-locked-in-time-or-place world that everyone lives in. We have the the introducting... The intro scene is a wall of TVs talking about air ducts and how you can make them fancier in your home and are your air ducts looking shabby you can upgrade them with whatever air duct company and I think that's so fitting because it's 
such a bizarre thing to care about, air ducts. And then throughout the movie, you see air ducts everywhere. There's all these weird, like, pipes and PVC everywhere. And it's just like, what is happening? (laughs) How is this structurally safe, let alone something people have decided is aesthetically pleasing? Right. And... I, you know, I think the answer is it isn't. It's it's very interesting. Like, the first thing we see is a little title card that says somewhere in the 20th century. So this movie is not locked down in time. It's never even really locked down in place. You know, plenty of the main characters have British accents, but just as many don't. So you can't even say, like, it's future England. We don't know if this is supposed to be you know, 2020 or 1997 or like an alternate 1985. It's just this, this crazy world with not flying cars, but weird looking cars. And everybody's got, you know, their, their little boxy apartments with their ducks and, all the TVs are super old timey. The programming super old timey. But at the same time, it all feels very futuristic, and it's this mishmash. Yeah, the movie made so much more not sense to me, but the concept of it made more sense to me when I learned that Tom Stoppard was involved with it. Because sure. Then I was like, oh, oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> it just has that theater of the absurd kind of feel to it right yeah and this has been called you know an absurdist film and a surrealist inspired film and i think you know most people who have seen the movie would go yeah yeah that's that's nail on the head because i mean just yeah even even beyond like the dream sequences which are like fantastical and nightmare fuel in their own right even beyond the most fantastic elements there is some weird stuff that goes on in this movie oh yeah for sure the flying the flying dream sequences were one of my favorite parts of the movie though mine too especially the first time i saw the movie you know you watch the trailer and it's it it almost seems like it's going to be a bigger element you've got jonathan price our hero as a hero in you know this this suit of superhero armor and war paint and the super impressive Icarus wing design costume and he's fighting giant robot samurai and it's like oh okay hell yeah I'm down with whatever is going on here and then you actually watch the movie and it's okay whatever's going on is like all those super interesting bits were dreams. And there's all this other interesting stuff, but it's all baked into this like grimy and and confusing in its own bureaucracy kind of way. You know, I mentioned it before. This movie was literally inspired by 1984, which Terry Gilliam was a humongous fan of and experimented with making the working title for this movie 1984 and a half. Um, <laughs> But uh, they were going to have problems legally doing that. So he went with Brazil instead. 
And, you know, Brazil's a weird title for the film. Nothing takes place in Brazil. The only real through line is that song I was singing at the beginning. The other thing that kind of, like, inspired this movie, um, Terry Gilliam's got a story about sitting on a beach and he's under a bar with everyone else because it's pouring rain but then there's this one guy sitting on a lawn chair in the pouring rain playing a boombox with that same brazil song and gilliam went that is so poignant and bonkers and i have to explore it because that's like the theme of this movie in a way is taking the deluge of the insanity of life and just carrying on and powering through it and just ignoring it if, if that's what you need to do to be happy. Yeah, there's one brilliant shot where two of the characters are driving and along the road there are all these beautiful billboards that make them look and feel like they're on a beach or they're in a beautiful mountain scene and they keep passing different billboards. And then the camera zooms out and you see nothing but wasteland. Right. And so it's like the billboards are lovely and stunning. And then when you zoom out, you see, oh, everything is not as it appears. And I think that's what the Brazil song um, as a theme does is kind of juxtaposes this idea of Brazil. It's June. It's hot, but it's paradise with the gritty reality is that you live in this grimy shoebox apartment where your husband can randomly get dead because of fly. (laughs) Yeah. This is the uh, second movie in a a row that I feel wound up being uh, incredibly prescient towards how, uh, you know, our modern day works in terms of social equality (laughs) and uh, what the government does. You know, the the government in Akira, I feel like, was at least a little smarter and more competent than the government in 1984, but still, uh, maybe maybe that makes it even worse. Oh, I don't know. I love the name of the torture branch of the government as information requisition. Right. Is, oh, you're torturing people. You're getting information because you're torturing people. Yeah, you know, I was it's, so uh, fitting. It's it's persuasive, percussive maintenance on on people, which our our country never did. Um, no. Anyway. No. <laughs> there is. Oh, it's uh, dark just, that we're laughing about that, but yeah. Th- there, there is another podcast I greatly enjoy called Friendly Fire. Yeah. It's these three very very liberal dudes who all love war movies and one of their episodes is on zero dark 30 and talking about you know the the nature of the real life torture that that was going on and that our government did during that time and it's it it made me you know watching brazil and and especially like right like you said information requisition that made me think of that moment you stupid bastard Jack, I'm frightened. Oh, how do you think I feel? But all that to say, like, so I I watched this film senior year of high school, first year of college, somewhere in there. um, And I really walked away deciding that I didn't like it. And 
for my second viewing this time, I found it to be a much better viewing experience. So I don't know what that says about like, you know, there are so many cult movies where we're like, maybe this is something that needs to be seen multiple times, but Uh, a film has to make you want to see it a second time. Now, did you watch the direct? Because we both this time watched the director's cut, which is the only one that's available on streaming. I watched it on Amazon. Um, But is there... Did you watch a different version, do you think? I don't think so. Uh, this was like Netflix sent me the DVD. This was this was that era when Netflix was still doing that and not just an online streaming content creator. Um, I'm sorry. Papa, tell me how that works. <laughs> we all tell gathered. me, how did you get movies in the mail? Well, son, the blockbusters had closed down. What is, what is a blockbuster? Buster, Papa, please explain. I'll block you, Buster. Hey. <laughs> uh, thank you for going along with my bit. I will always, yes, and I take great joy in it. Um, but no, to answer your question, I'm I'm almost positive that I've only ever seen the director's cut. Um, like you mentioned, it is, as far as I can tell, the only version available for streaming. Period. Huh. Which, if you know a little bit about the history of the film, actually makes a lot of sense because, like, there are multiple versions of this movie that have been released and brought out, and Terry Gilliam hates all but one of them, which is his. (laughs) (laughs) That's so um, moody artist of him. I I think we're going to talk about it a little later. Terry Gilliam is one hell of a moody artist. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean there's there's the original studio cut which Gilliam made and then I didn't really put notes down about it, but the story I read is he was showing it to a University of Southern California film class that he like was commissioned to teach that semester. He was showing it to them ahead of time and the studio really didn't like this and tried to blackball the movie. But because Gilliam had already started showing it to people and it, it had gotten buzz and like critics and producers and other, other people in Hollywood knew about it. Like they wound up going to the producers being like, so are you going to release this movie? We were going to nominate it for best picture, but, and it, you know, wound up getting released in its original studio cut. And then later, um, the production studio made their own version, which is the infamous love conquers all version of Brazil, which has a happy ending cuts out like the last 10 minutes of the movie and Gilliam despises. Well, I can see why. Yeah. I mean, when, when, you know, you make a movie and kind of your thematic statement is about escaping or ignoring the, pressures of society and like you know you watch the actual movie with it with its actual real ending and it it just hits you in such a somber but poignant appropriate way to take that out and just go he gets the girl yay he got the girl he beat the system it entirely changes the movie right yeah it's the polar opposite 
Yeah. Because spoiler alert, the movie ends with the entire movie. We've been kind of following the main character, Sam's struggle with the system and trying to figure out what to do and trying to fight against it. And we spend the entire movie with him only to pull out and realize he's being tortured. He's under basically some kind of torture situation and he's so moved past torture in his mind to escape it that he's completely lost any cognition of the actual world. So we're left wondering how much actually happened. It's kind of like American Psycho. You're left wondering like, okay, at what part did it become fantasy? At what part are we just in Sam's head? Is the whole movie just in Sam's head? What's real? What's not real? And so to change that into a whole conversation about love conquers everything and our hero gets out okay, it's a completely different movie. Absolutely. I would argue, I like... I think most of the movie definitely happened. This isn't an instance like American Psycho where it really came into question for me, but most definitely, you know, Sam gets pulled out of his house. Jill is presumably machine gunned down. I don't know. Right, right, right. We And we will dissect that. Okay. Either way, Sam is pulled out of his house. He is brought to the Ministry, Ministry of Information. He is about to be tortured by his friend Jack. And, like, at that point, I think, is when he just... He, he breaks his mind in half and literally yeah. goes into his happy place with pretending that his friend Tuttle, like, you know, rescued him and he got the girl and he got the happy ending. And you come to find out, like, no, he just, like, he's, we've, we've lost him, sir. He's gone. Yeah. And there is such a, like, that was Gilliam's point. The idea that, like, Sam gets this Pyrrhic victory. His whole life is so crap, but he gets happiness. But in order to get his happiness, he literally has to just make himself go mad. So to compare that to he got the girl, yeah, I can see why Gilliam would be pissed. (laughs) Yeah, I would be too. I would be too. I was going to say, I think it's so interesting that Gilliam's thesis was Sam is unhappy and his victory in the end is him escaping his life. Because if you look into dream interpretation, flying dreams always mean that you are unhappy in your waking life and you're out of control. Dreaming of flying in the air normally happens when someone feels out of control of what's going on in their waking life. So you're flying, you here in the dream world, you can control what's happening to you. And it's that much more interesting when you add on the dream symbology of cages and specifically cages placed up high. So it's at some points in Sam's dream, Jill, his love interest, is in a floating cage above him. And that kind of means that there's something that you want that's unattainable out of your reach. So it makes, like, when you know about dream symbology, 
everything with the final thesis of the movie makes so much sense. And I was like, oh, I really hope that this is what they're saying. And then in the end for it to be, that's what they're saying. It was like, I am check, 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 check. <laughs> I, I was so excited to be able to, <laughs> you know, discuss your own experiences with being like somebody who, you know, goes through the time and the effort to actually interpret dreams. And I think, you know, you're exactly right that you, you had an extra edge that somebody else watching this movie wouldn't have had. Yeah, I, I, I really love interpreting dreams because it's basically like, what is my subconscious telling me that I have a problem with? So having that in this movie, I was like, ooh, yes, please. All the things I love. Yeah. <laughs> do you do you find yourself ever like daydreaming at work do you ever do you like like so sam is is very much a escapist character even yeah even at the beginning of the movie when he says he's happy you know he's he the first thing we see of him is his dreams of flight and it made me realize like i really at least in like the context of my profession and my life, I I don't have those same escapism moments. At least I don't think so. No, but I'll like rehab conversations with people in my head or I, I am forever prone to those moments where you think of a perfect comeback years later. (laughs) So, you know, all my ex-boyfriends from high school, man, do I have some burners for you 15 years later. Ha ha. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't I don't necessarily daydream in that I imagine myself flying and this beautiful chiseled man is in a cage suspended above me and I have to fight a samurai monster. That's not exactly my experience. <laughs> If it was exactly your experience, we'd we'd be leading this conversation down a much different route now. (laughs) Stephanie, honey, you okay? What's going on, friend? Let's Let's, let's let's, talk it out. Let's figure out what robot samurai monsters mean in a dream. Dude, I can can interpret dreams all day long, but that I was like, I don't know, a giant metal opponent? Maybe it's something with working the system? I don't know where the samurai thing has anything to do with it. Let's see if Google knows samurai dreams. <laughs> I love that we're doing this. I was going to say, I mean, because it's cool. <laughs> I mean, probably. Oh, apparently Samurai Dreams is a song. Um, good but title. I, yeah, can't find anything for what samurais might mean in a dream. Which, I mean, fair, fair enough. You know, speaking of the dreams, once, like, like to use visual language once it became clear that those flying sequences were dreams it it makes so much more sense how they were presented i think what gilliam did was he really actually like accurately portrayed what a dream can be like with the you know quick immediate cuts from one thing to another and super weird subjective angles so i thought that was really cool that he was able to translate 
that in a way that I don't really know if we see all that much, especially, you know, usually if a, if a character in a, in a movie is dreaming, you know, usually it's like a, a horror movie or something and it's an avenue for a jump scare and yeah. it looks like just the rest of the movie only then, you know, a zombie woman comes out or something. The only director I know who does dream sequences really well is Joss Whedon did a really good episode of Buffy where all the characters are dreaming. And not only is it shot like dreams are in your head, but the narrative plotting of the episode is like, and suddenly you're on a stage and suddenly you realize you're naked and suddenly you have to sing a song. It follows the exact like logic that dreams do. Sure. But I think Gilliam did a really good job of, okay, these are dreams, my only problem with them is when they stopped being at night and when they started being when Sam is just sitting in the office sure. or when Sam is on public transportation. Cause that's what really started my, okay, what's happening? How reliable is Sam as a narrator? Is he really, is this really real? What am I supposed to be experiencing? And I'm, I'm totally here for that because I you keened on something that I honestly didn't, and that being the idea of Sam as the unreliable narrator. Right. And he's not, it's not that we, so like he's not narrating out loud and he's certainly not in the whole movie. There are scenes on both ends of the movie where he's not in it, but he's the one we follow for most of the movie and he's the one whose plot really drives the action. So when you examine him as a narrator and then you start having these dream sequences and then they go back and forth and then the movie breaks and it turns out that he has driven himself insane and he's regressed into his own inner world. It's, it kind of leaves us thinking again, like a like with American Psycho. Okay, that last scene with him and Jill, where they were suddenly together, that did seem kind of random. That she was, she all of a sudden had long hair, and she was all of a sudden really willing, whereas before she was very much not into him. Right. So. You you planted what the happened? seed. You well, yeah. You planted the seed in my head, and I just I it kept growing, and I kept thinking more about it. And you know, the more I think about it, like I can't figure out when, um, I can't figure out when Sam necessarily just starts dreaming through his life. But I, like you say, it's probably when he starts doing it during the day, and it's like. Okay, yeah. Did any of the the last couple scenes with Jill even happen? Did he really bring her to his mom's apartment? Did Tuttle really show up a second time and fill those two mean uh, Central Service guys' air suits full of shit? Like, like did any of that right? really happen? And you right can't because it say feels sure. rare. Exactly. It feels very convenient. The timing of Tuttle, the timing of Jill. There is a theory within the un, unreliable narrator theory, there's a theory called the ideal audience. And when you examine like what Sam's thinking about in his head, he's 
he's presenting to an ideal audience. He's presenting himself as Sam in his dreams as this amazing man who can fly and who can fight giant samurai monsters. And his intended audience is his love interest, Jill. So of course, when we see her suddenly being willing to like be romantic with him and be intimate with him, I'm like, this isn't real. And I don't know why I know it, but I know that it isn't real. Sure. I think that's so cool just because like, I don't know, normally I'm so critical about like the stories I'm watching, but I think in this instance, I'm very much more likely just to go around and accept something not always, mm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. spoilers for, for Joker, if anyone cares, and spoilers <laughs> for you, if you care. I don't think you do. Um, oh, I don't know. I've heard good things. Maybe I'll see it. Maybe I won't. I have also heard that it's just really hard to watch in general. So That's fair. Spoilers for Joker, for anyone who cares. Like, I, I always knew that the girlfriend wasn't real. So. Uh, interesting. Like, you know, I, I I don't always just blithely accept, but but for Brazil, I did until you kind of, you know, asked me to question it a little further. And once you did, it just started un- unraveling more and more and more and more. Ah, uh, Flagler College English major would be proud. Yay! <laughs> so I will say, if you want to learn more about the unreliable narrator, you should read the Rhetoric of Fiction, which is a Um, collection by Wayne C. Booth, who's an American literary critic. And it's kind of like the tome if you want to read about literary criticism when it comes to narrator intent. And it's fascinating. You will never trust another work inherently again. It's one of those books that you're like, oh, well, now I have to question everything. Cool, 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 cool. Okay. It's tough reading, but it's very good. Awesome. All right. And it reminds me so much. There is so much in this movie that reminds me of American Psycho, which is why I love having a film podcast, because it's basically (laughs) like comparative literature class. You know, true. Very true. Is this... Is having an unreliable narrator a theme of cult movies? maybe you know my my whole thing i agree with you more as i think about it that sam is an unreliable narrator when i first you know when when you first brought that take i was here for it but i didn't necessarily agree with it and i just thought it's not that he's unreliable it's that he's he's actually like a subversive hero he's he's mm. our protagonist but he's not our hero because you look at what sam actually does and he's just as selfish and ridiculous as everyone else oh, in sure. the movie except for jill and maybe tuttle but our unreliable narrators inherently cult i i would agree that you know i think unreliable narrators maybe are inherently cult and we are like you know discovering this as we watch more and more of these movies I think that, like, the unreliable narrator is a tough sell for your mm-hmm. average moviegoer. You're, you're, you know, somebody who's just going to the movies on a date on the weekend and going to see the big blockbuster thing, you know, 
no disrespect to anybody who doesn't like really chew on their narrative, you know, video doesn't really chew on movies as much as say you and I do. Um, but I think through and through it's, it's harder to sell that concept. And if you are going to sell that concept, it needs to be the big final act twist that changes the whole thing. And that's not really the case here. There's, there is the twist that Sam is dreaming through his torture, but like, my, my, my point is like, I think the people who do enjoy stories with unreliable narrators and the more like complex, hard to access stories in general, the people who seek them out are going to tend to like them more and talk about them more within their own circles, which is exactly, you know, what cult movies are. Yeah. So that was a little rambly, but... (laughs) Well, it reminds me of the time we talked about is sex cult, because we talked about, like, we realized that, you know, something crazy, like 70% of the movies we watched had explicit sex scenes, which, you know, I don't want to be puritanical at all. Like, sex is great. Enjoy sex. Be safe. Be consensual. But... I think there's something about mainstream audiences don't necessarily want that in their movies. And I think it's the same thing. Like, you don't necessarily go to a movie to have a deeper discussion about who are we all as people and what are the stories we're telling ourselves and where do we fail in that. Like, if everyone was on board for that, it would be chaos because we would all be questioning constantly what is meaning, what is everything, and none of us would be happy ever. Not to mention the fact that, you know, everybody would have their own film podcast. <laughs> and no one would listen to ours. <laughs> Except for the fine folks at Carl's Jr. Carl's Jr., where you get your burgers. Is, is that the tagline we're going with? I, I, I'm here for it. I just missed that marketing meeting. <laughs> <laughs> if Don't Sam, worry, if Sam Lowry, if Sam Lowry had had a delicious Carl's Jr. burger, it would have been enough to get him through his own life, so that he wouldn't need to go to his happy place. <laughs> Carl's Jr. Our burgers will drive you crazy. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Oh my god i love it no i love it i'm here for the carl's jr running joke thank you for not letting it be a, a two off <laughs> delicious beyond barbecue cheeseburger with american f-ing cheese tangy f-ing barbecue sauce and onion rings that are crispy as fuck <laughs> you're welcome you know what else i'm here for the high sparrow is in this movie but like way younger absolutely yeah so that is jonathan price who like he was Juan Perón in the filmed version of Evita. He was a oh, Bond villain. Yeah. Like he is, he is a wonderful actor. I very much enjoy his career. And yeah, what what most people would know him as nowadays, especially, is the High Sparrow. This cast is like a who's who when you really get. Oh to my it. gosh, it's so good. Yeah. You know, we got uh, the great Jim Broadbent, who um, was also in Game of Thrones as Dr. Jaffe, the plastic surgeon. You know, I I most fondly remember him from Moulin Rouge, Um, but he's also, you know, Horace Slughorn. 
Bob Hoskins as Spore, the nasty Central Service repairman. Eamon Targaryen. Mm-hmm. This is, like, I'm wondering who the, the agent is. Any Anytime, like, you see a TV show where it's like, or, or just any project where it's like all these actors are hanging out together, I always try to figure out, okay, who's got the agent that just represents all of these people? And... I mean, I don't know in this case, but... Man, I don't know. And Kim Greist, who was the mom in... Uh, not Home Alone. Homeward Bound. Help me out. Thank you. I knew it had home in it. Homeward Bound, which I'm kind of deciding whether or not it goes on the list, but that might just because I want to watch a movie about dogs and cry. I know. <laughs> but yeah, just like it, it, it was so fun talk, like watching the movie and being like, oh, I know who that is. Oh, I know who that is. Oh, hey. Oh, hey, oh, it's hey. him. Ooh, piece of candy. Um, which leads me. Oh, in- hey, it's Robert freaking Nero. Right. We didn't even talk about Robert De Niro <laughs> as, you know, Tuttle, the gorilla repairman who just does it because he thinks bureaucracy is dumb, which is such a ridiculous, crazy thing that, like, it instantly made me think of the time it happened in real life. Wait, what? <laughs> so this was like last year in in Japan. I want to say in Osaka, but don't quote me on that. In, in some city in Japan an entire district of bus drivers went on strike, but they still came into work. They still ran their routes. They still made sure everyone else got there, got where they needed to go on time, but they refused payment. <laughs> what? What? That's so chaotic. Good. Right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and that's a great word for Tuttle. Chaotic. Good. Yes. He is. He is chaotic. Good. All over the place. Absolutely. You were going to say something, though, about which brings me to my next point about casting. Well, yeah. So I, I I don't think this has happened on the show yet. If it has, it's been very minor characters, you know, talking about the cast, talking about, oh, I remember him. Oh, I remember him. I'd like to start a new thing for cult fiction moving forward, which is, you know, anytime we see somebody that makes us go, oh, I remember him. You know, I, I want to talk about it. So, returning to cult fiction, uh, the esteemed Michael Palin, who we last saw in Monty Python's Life of Brian as Pontius Pilate, making everyone <laughs> laugh over Bickus Dickus. But why is it funny if his name is Biggest Dickus? <laughs> so, you know, uh, Gilliam was pretty much a, a founding member of the Pythons of Monty Python's flying circus, along with Michael Palin. And I just absolutely think that he, you know, asked his friend to come do this movie. Michael Palin in Brazil was Jack who, you know, is yeah. our main character's friend who works for information retrieval and, you know, tortures him at the end. And yep. like, I wanted to talk to you about it to just take a moment to compare biggest Dickus to Jack Lent. It's so funny because in the beginning when we first meet him, it's like the same person. Because he's funny, he's jovial, he's like, hey buddy, it's nice to see ya. And every time we see him, he's very 
just relaxed and calm. And then when we see him in the final scene, it's like, oh, oh, this is different. Yeah. You know, I really appreciated the the performance and the nuance. Mm-hmm. You know, any, any actor can give multifaceted nuance performance. I'm not here to say that that isn't the case. But when you are, you know, one of the Monty Pythons, to be able to turn around and play this still happy role, but I I would argue a dramatic role. You know, the scene at the end where he has to torture Sam, it is so apparent the conflict and the internal struggle going on with him, whether his motivations are entirely pure, he's snapping at him being like, why did you make me have to do this to you? And I just, I, I really like it. You know, I'm, I've always been the actor nerd. I've always been the, you know, the, the, the guy who plays six degrees of Kevin Bacon for fun. And this is like literally the culmination of that where we can start being like, so he was great in life of Brian as the funny guy. And he's great in Brazil as the more serious guy. And just Michael Palin's great, I guess is my big takeaway. I agree with you. Another fantastic performance in this movie is um, Victoria Buttle, who is played by the brilliant Sheila Reed. Mm-hmm. There is a scene in this movie where Sheila Sheila Reed Sheila Reed's Mrs. Buttle is distraught because her husband has been taken away from her home by information services, has been tortured, all because of a typo caused by an errant fly. And Sam comes to deliver a check, kind of a, basically a condolence check. Yeah, pretty much. And Mrs. Buttle says he's dead, isn't he? And the entire scene, she is somber and heartbroken and she's portraying grief and anger at the system and she's hopeless and it's fantastic because she never really gets mad but she gets mad at the same time like she never really just boils over but she's quietly seething the entire time right until she finally gets really mad yeah until until she literally boils over but she goes zero to a hundred that is one of the best scenes in the movie between mrs buttle and sam and just the way that he's you know he's so used to this ordered like here's your check and thank you here's your receipt and here's my receipt for your receipt he's so used to the the prim and proper like life he's accustomed to it's another way that he's just as like selfish as everyone else he's stuck in those same lines and you know whether mrs buttle was or wasn't she certainly isn't now that she is a widower with two kids to take care of living in this slum and the the budding of ideals there as as sam is just painfully awkwardly refusing to answer her question and talking about christmas decorations when she's asking is my husband dead and she finally just yeah. you know turns into a, a screaming wailing wreck it, it is a phenomenal performance that is your receipt for your husband thank you and this is my receipt for your receipt yeah, it's so good. Yeah, uh, I didn't want to cut. Uh, I, I didn't want to skip around her, but you know the other performance that we both thought was very phenomenal was Kim Greist. 
uh, Grace, Grace, who would put it? She's the mom from Homeward Bound, and I love that. And I loved her as Jill. Jill was such a charming badass. And, you know, I would argue the real hero of the movie. Yes, she's the one who solves, she's the one who's fighting for the people. And she's the one who's kind of watching out for Mrs. Buttle. She's the one who's going from service to service being like, no, I got the stamp. Yes, you. I was here yesterday. And I found it really interesting to, when I was reading about the movie, to find out that Gilliam didn't like her. Right. Didn't like that he cast her and tried to cut out the majority of her scenes. And Which, like, dude, you casted her. <laughs> right. It's like, wh- what's going on here? Um, and, you know, obviously we watched the director's cut. One of the notes about the director's cut is apparently most of her scenes were cut down. And, and you know, we, we lost some of her material on the cutting room floor. I just don't know what Terry Gilliam was on about here. She was she was charismatic. She was fun. She seemed really, like, secure in her character as, like, somebody who keeps her head down but also is this good person. She's not trying to fix the buttle issue because it'll get her a promotion or, you know, she'll be in trouble if she doesn't. None of these things that motivate Sam. She's just like... Hey, my neighbor just went through a trauma. I got to go fix it because I'm a good person. I deliver houses. I get Christmas presents. I'm a good person. And, yeah. and you know, Greased does... That's how I'm deciding it is, Greased. Um, Greased does a great performance. And I can't tell if, like, was she bad and we just saw her absolute material... Or was Terry Gilliam a sexist asshole for this one? I'm kind of guessing the latter. I'm so glad you said it because I didn't want to be the broad who said it. (laughs) (laughs) I am nothing if not a good ally who will call out a a sexist man when I see one. Yeah, it's... uh, I I was just assuming it was the director being a dick. Yeah. But... Because she seems lovely. She's so... I loved the scene where she and Sam are in her high-powered truck thing. And she says, oh, yeah, I think you're really hot. Let me take, let me scoot back and let me take a full look at you. And then kicks them out of the car. Yep, yep, yep. That was fantastic. There's a a bit in the trailer and (laughs) it's the moment where they're both at the, the shopping mall or whatever it is. And Sam's like saying, you don't trust me. And she's got a line about all of the crappy stuff he's done to her. And then she's like, oh, of course I trust you. And, you know, I'm not going to discredit <laughs> the line by trying to imitate it. The delivery she gives of just that line perfectly tells you, like, all you need to know. It's a it's a fun performance. You know, she, um, I'm looking here, she had a 20-year film career. So, you know, it's not that she's a bad actress. I don't think she did anything as high profile as Brazil, but she was in home, homeward bound. So what more do you need? <laughs> exactly. No, I, I really liked her. I thought she was great. The, the whole cast is great. This is like you, you said it after yeah. you texted me saying, what the hell did I just watch? Which is 90% of my text to you after I've watched a movie. Pretty much. 
<laughs> this is this is a performance movie. Like you're you're here for the mm-hmm. performance and you're here for the insane and detailed and wonderful in the level of care that went into it world that Gilliam built, you know, where we're we're he he may be a sexist. We honestly don't know. I I don't I I haven't seen anything else to substantiate that. But he had a wrong take about Kim Grice. But the thing about Gilliam is he is so good at coming up with these fantastic worlds. Brazil is a grungy, dirty, bizarre, fantastic world, but one nonetheless. Yeah, Brazil, where the dark the characters of the Dark Knight would look at it and go. Oh, pull me. <laughs> yeah, Brazil, where baby face monsters are, uh, you know, crawling around the street. Um, my oh. <laughs> my dear wife, Mariah, tried to watch this with me, but she got very sleepy early on, um, fell asleep, and then woke up and turned her head at the exact moment to see oh, one no. of those Henson baby faced freak monsters and just goes don't like it what is going what am i watching what what the hell is happening (laughs) you can absolutely feel free to cut this because it's so not related but on halloween alex and i walked around the hipper neighborhood where we live and there was someone who is dressed up as a woman giving birth and this person was absolutely male presenting and it was a person in like a sincere, like a doctor's or like person at a hospital robe, but then there was a baby head coming out of their crotch. Huh. And out out loud, I went, "Nope, don't like that." <laughs> and the person just laughed hilariously. And Alex goes, "I think you just made their night." Yeah, that's clearly what he was going for. <laughs> it was horrendous. <laughs> I that sounds awful. I would have said the same but, exact thing. But it was no Muppet baby heads in the streets. (laughs) It was very close to Muppet baby heads in the streets, though. Speaking of baby heads, Terry Gilliam's daughter has the best line of this whole damn movie. Yes, yes, she does. (laughs) Which is, put it on. I won't look at your willy. (laughs) Which, uh, for the first time, I think, is... The Daily Double quote for cult fiction. Uh, We both independently decided that that was the best quote in the movie, because how could it not be? A (laughs) four-year-old saying, I won't look at you, Willie. (laughs) (laughs) With the sweetest, most innocent face. Oh, yeah. I did not know until so you told me. that's our joint quote. Yeah, 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 yeah. I did not know until you told me that that was Gilliam's daughter. That makes it all the better. IMDb, man. It's a great place. Indeed. <laughs> you know what else is a great place? <laughs> Kevin Bacon. The warehouse. Oscars? The warehouse where Kevin Bacon dances in from which this <laughs> music is from. That's a segue. (laughs) Uh, Why don't you go first, friend? Sure, sure, sure. Um, So we, God, we didn't even mention him. Ian Holm is in this movie as Mr. Kurtzman. He is Sam's first boss. I, I love 
the Department of Records. I love the um, the you know super chaotic like everyone's moving a thousand miles a minute, but it's all everybody knows where they're going. I love that dynamic and the fact that the second the boss is away, they all turn on the TVs immediately and stop working because you know that's my <laughs> dynamic. Um, <laughs> I love Ian Holm. I just I. How can you not love a Shakespearean trained actor who breaks into movies? You know, people will remember him as Bilbo Baggins in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, among so many other things. Um, (laughs) Ian Holm was in the Lord of the Rings, specifically Fellowship of the Ring or Return of the King. Either one works um, with Sean Austin, who was in... Let me make sure I get the title right. Who was in Whitewater Summer with Kevin Bacon, which, uh, fair, like, getting this out of the way, I've never seen, but apparently is a, like, adventure movie about two boys who go whitewater rafting down a waterfall, from what I can tell. So, Sean Austin is in Whitewater Summer with Kevin Bacon, and Ian Holm... Sean Austin, Kevin Bacon, I did it in two. That's my answer. Oh. Oh, buddy. Oh, buddy. Oh, buddy. <laughs> oh, oh, friend. Robert De Niro is in this. Robert De Niro is in this. And I guess is probably Shakespearean trained, but... Is probably. He was in Sleepers with Kevin Bacon. Sleepers. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was sitting here trying to, like without cheating be like what 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 did they what is s what is s who is rd well rd yeah that i figured oh did you get it yeah yeah yeah. okay i specifically (laughs) put rd and not rdn because that was trying to be sneaky it did take me a minute it it it, fair fair point to you Uh, speaking of me being sneaky, I'm gonna sneak one more reading wreck in here. Go for it. There is a there is a book called The Battle for Brazil, which is all about the whole thing we talked about about how Terry Gilliam fought for this movie to be what we saw and like the legal battles it entailed. So it's called The Battle for Brazil, Terry Gilliam versus Universal Pictures, and it's by Jack Matthews. I haven't read it, but it sounds fascinating so readers if you want to learn more about the legal battles of hollywood sounds like this is up your alley it definitely sounds like a great read you know i i'm such a film nerd for that sort of stuff and you know even if you just hear a couple of stories like this really does seem like it was one of the most contentious director versus studio battles of the 80s it's it's absolutely nuts so so thank you for that reading rack absolutely yeah. Maybe I found your Christmas present. Who's Maybe. to say? Who, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Well, either way, any gift from you is absolutely wonderful. And something we do on Cult Fiction is we give gifts to our movies in the form of Oscars. <laughs> yes i will give a gift to this movie for the best random two second shot 
for the consumers for Christ banners outside the yeah. mall during Christmas shopping. <laughs> I saw that and made Alex pause. I was like, wait, what? Did I just read that properly? Because that's Fantastic. like the spirit of the movie right there. Yes. Consumerism. Let's somehow make it about religion. Let's try and make it more meaningful than it actually is. But no, I saw that too. You know that you know this movie is ostensibly supposed to take place during Christmas, and to see like that Brazil's version of the Salvation Army is Consumers for Christ is <laughs> phenomenally appropriate. <laughs> very, very appropriate. Um, my Oscar for Brazil. I went kind of different this time. I would like to honestly give. Brazil and specifically Terry Gilliam the the Oscar for most ambitious director because like like okay picture picture this follow with me here you're Terry okay. Gilliam you're an animator okay. from Minnesota you've just spent the Minnesota. last decade yeah he's not even British I didn't know that um I didn't know that all right you just spent the past decade in Monty Python's Flying Circus, a British sketch show to the point where people assume you're British because you were in Monty Python. Um, and, you know, the only other things you have directed are a King Arthur movie with, you know, your sketch buddies. So it's a, a little bit of work by committee and Time Bandits. Which is on our oh, list, and, and without spoiling, is a worse movie. <laughs> oh, no. And this was the third thing he ever directed. And, you know, he wrote it, directed it himself. I, I, I'm going to have to read the book now to understand, like, how he sold the idea and got the financing. But just for, like, you know, this is your third movie... Neither of your other two, like, okay, yeah, Monty Python and the Holy Grail was a smash hit, but it wasn't necessarily a smash hit because of Terry Gilliam's direction. So to to make Brazil, which for all of its flaws is, you know, a com uh, incredibly complex story with fully fleshed out characters, set design out the wazoo, every production detail, like finely tuned and figured out and then put a duct on so that it fits the aesthetic of the movie like love it or hate it i think it was an incredibly ambitious project and most people would argue a success for him clearly yeah i'll give you that that's for sure yeah so would you say brazil is cult Oh, yeah. This is so cult. I completely agree. If for no other reason than both of us now have, like, walked away the first time being like, I don't know if I liked it. I don't know if I did <laughs> not like it. Um, I didn't hate it. No, sure, sure, sure. I just don't know if I... I was so surprised when you were like, oh, really? I really liked it. I was like, really? I don't know what... And the more time I've spent, I understand. Sure. Well, I mean, I was surprised to like it the second time. You know, I wasn't dreading this, but I I was certainly ready to come at the movie critically. And, you know, I feel like I did a fair job of that, but I can definitely say, like, I liked it more the second time. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, 
you know, just to go through the financial nerdery, because this one, this is actually a bit of a stretch. Uh, Brazil had an estimated budget of $15 million. And just, just for fun, would you like to guess how much it made opening weekend? Uh, no, because I'm really bad at math. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, opening weekend, it made 30000 Wait, what? Yeah. Budget of $15 million. Opening weekend of thirty thousand, uh, worldwide gross of just under ten million dollars. Which, you know, we we've, we've talked about before. If you don't make three times your money, it's a failure. Oh no! So you know, box office bomb, but movie that multiple like entities and and things that rank movies like entertainment weekly channel four um afi like this movie winds up on so many lists of top 50 cult movies or you know 100 movies you need to see before you die um i think channel four who i will remind people said that life of brian was the funniest movie of the 20th century for like 30 years or something you know also went on to say that brazil was one of the best films of the decade or of the century rather so nobody saw this movie but the people who did utterly loved it and that is cult that's so cult yeah that's the thing that's part of it so now on cult fiction comes the point where we figure out if the next movie is going to be cult spoilers it, it probably is this is called cult fiction for a reason but we uh it's movie time is where i'm going it's movie time it's movie time it's movie time our movies are randomly selected and this next one is hopefully now not anaconda hopefully not uh we have 313 movies in the hollywood crypt and the crypt wants us to watch next do 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 huh huh (laughs) so we've got Uh number 109 which is ghost in the shell ghost in the shell ghost in the shell is a 1995 animated sci-fi movie by momaru (laughs) oshi okay so I'm just I'm just sitting here being like Crypt you you got Crypt. so you got so close to the sci-fi anime double feature. So close. So close. Why did you want us to watch Brazil in the middle? <laughs> I think we'll discover next time on Cult Fiction. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We'll probably find some thematic theme where like where we're like, oh, of course. Well, spoiler, it's another um, you know, look at the future that is dystopian and borderline totalitarian. But you know, that's not and it's... becoming the theme of twenty nineteen or anything. <laughs> it's available on Google Movies. It's available on Vudu, iTunes, and Amazon Prime. Yes, for thank you. We are mm-hmm. getting better at, at letting people know that, or rather, you are. Only because Chris will text me and say, "So where can I watch this?" Well, it's fair. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we put on our cloak suits, arm up, and uh, shoot some robots as we watch 1995's Ghost in the Shell. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell.